Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center and your host for this episode. Traditionally, accounts of the scientific advances of the Renaissance have focused on the contributions of famous individuals like Copernicus, whose theories about heavenly bodies radically altered how we understood the arrangement of the universe and our place in it. Increasingly, though, historians have noted striking parallels between the work of figures like Copernicus and their contemporaries in the Islamic world, though they've not been able to fully explain how these similarities arose. Joining us today is Robert Morrison, professor of religion at Bowdoin College and also a fellow this year at the National Humanities Center. Robert Morrison has been working to trace the connections between these thinkers and to uncover the ways that scientific knowledge moved between continents and between cultures during the Renaissance era. When we think about towering figures of the scientific renaissance or the scientific revolution, we tend to think about people like Copernicus and Galileo. And often we tend to think of them, actually, we sort of conflate them, right? They are the ones who put the sun at the center of the universe, of the cosmos. And then Galileo paid the consequences for that. But help us tease this apart a little bit and maybe even start by talking to us a little bit about who Copernicus was in his own right and how we should understand him in the period that he was active in. So I think the first thing to understand is that Copernicus lived a lifetime before Galileo. I mean, Copernicus dies in 1543, Galileo dies in 1642, if I'm not mistaken. So they're really two different times and um, really two different, very different people. Copernicus um, is often seen as more of the the last of uh, medieval astronomers, but with the recognition that medieval astronomy is no joke. He was someone who, while, while he's known for astronomy, he was working in the Catholic, well, in the church. He was interested in, he studied medicine, he studied rhetoric, he studied logic. He was widely educated and had varied, had many interests, even though, of course, he's best known for his work in astronomy. When you look at Copernicus and the contributions he made in many fields, but in, in particular in his astronomical work, there's been kind of an enduring puzzle about similarities in this work. Talk to us a little bit about what this puzzle is and how you're chipping away at it. So Copernicus is known for um, being the first um, person to propose a sun-centered cosmos and to do that with astronomical theories that are mathematically precise. He is the earliest person to have done that, as far as we know. The puzzle is that when you look at how he fleshed this out, and it's extremely mathematically complex, all of the details are present in Islamic astronomy. The one thing that's not present, as far as we know, in late medieval Islamic astronomy is a sun-centered cosmos. But the puzzle is that basically going from an Earth-centered to a sun-centered system is simply flipping the direction of a vector. 
But beyond that, the details look a lot like Islamic astronomy. You can flip the universe and put the sun at the center, but you're basically, you can do it as a trick, basically. You can keep the mathematics that would the work mathematics, the geocentric The mathematics and the well. details are exactly the same. And the details are extremely complex. So it's not simply just flipping the earth and the sun. It's flipping... 50 to 60 other orbs, hollow spheres. Basically, in history, we're taught to explain things from context. And I think Copernicus was an extremely intelligent person um, and obviously had an insight. The task of a historian is to explain why things happen. And if we simply say someone was very smart and that's the end of it, well, you'd get a C in sophomore year of college for saying that. So in addition to being smart, you note that there are these similarities to what is found in Arabic astronomy. Talk to us a little bit more about what that means and what you found out in your work. So I, I do need to stress that, I mean, this is a hugely complex problem, and it's a team effort. And, you know, everything I'm doing at the National Humanities Center would not be possible without people who are publishing before I was born, my senior colleagues. I want to say also my colleagues who are scholars of the Renaissance have done a lot of interesting work. And um, part of my project is is to look at, well, why would people in the Renaissance be interested in Islamic astronomy? It's not obvious. Um, It was an exciting time. They were up to their own things. And why would they be talking to the people? You know, what, why, how do we explain why there must have been contact? I think the challenge we've had is that while you have these similarities, because the actual Islam Arabic texts are, have not been translated, or we haven't found translations of them into, say, Latin, we don't have kind of the paper evidence or the same type of evidence. What I'm particularly working on is a network of scholars moving around the Mediterranean. One of these guys knows or knew exactly what Copernicus needed to know and was in the right place at the right time. This guy's name is um, in Hebrew. He's Jewish, or he was Jewish. His name was Moshe Galeanu. When he wrote in Arabic and in Turkish, he was Musa Jalinus, so he had two names. And he knew exactly what Copernicus needed to know and was in the right place at the right time. And, you know, working and using some of the research my um, my senior colleague uh, Tzvi Langerman has put out, I've also I've I'm trying to explain how Moses Galliano gets to the Veneto and why people would have talked to him. What's the broader context of the ex- of the intellectual exchanges in which he um, would have engaged? Copernicus himself would not have been able to read the Arabic texts. Not as far so as we know. F- yeah. So from that, uh, we assume that there were intermediaries, and Moses Galliano is somebody who sort of emerges as a prime suspect. Basically. What do we know about him? Who he was interacting with? Who, where he traveled? You mentioned the Veneto. What do we know about this guy? He first comes on sort of the historical radar in probably the late 1490s, early 1500s. He's at the court of the Ottoman Sultan. We know in between 1497 and 1503, he made a trip from Istanbul to Venice. That we know for sure. 
We know that when he came back, he produced an Arabic version of an of a Latin or Catalan. It's hard to know, but a European astronomical text. That tells you, and that's something senior colleagues have found out, but that tells you, right, that he knew or he knew Latin or thought he knew Latin, and that there's exchange, right? Because see, whatever he gave away, he took something back. One of the things that's you got to keep in mind when you work on, say, developments that become so important for modernity is it wouldn't have seemed like that to the historical actors, right? The Renaissance was fascinating, but they were into some weird stuff as well. These people were into alchemy. They were into mysticism. They cured diseases in ways you don't want to try at home. For us moderns, it's all about a heliocentric cosmos. It wouldn't have seemed that way. And so you've got to look at the trading, not simply this unidirectional transmission to reach what now seems like the obvious telos or goal, right? So he, he like was in Venice, and then he comes back to Istanbul, right? And he's patronized by a high-ranking Ottoman official. We know ultimately by around 1540, I found out a few years ago that he ends up on Crete and because he's paying taxes on Crete, which was part of the Venetian Republic at that time, and that's where he probably died. A a younger guy working in Italy, just I read his dissertation a few months ago, and he seems to have found out that Galliano gets to Crete by the 1520s. I was in Venice uh, a few years ago working on the archives there, and there were these two boxes of documents that I really wanted to look at. And I'm going there for like two weeks, and they never have them for me. Obviously, this other guy, he's perfectly nice, was using them for his dissertation. And he's finding out that, you know, Galliano is on Crete by the 1520s and some other interesting stuff. He, um, he's, a, he's a rabbi. He's a doctor. He's basically a poser and a social climber. Um, he's real interested in showing up other Jewish physicians at the Sultan's court. He's interested in demystifying mechanical devices. He's interested in explaining why alchemy doesn't work. Um, fascinating. You noted that he's Jewish. He's a rabbi. Yeah. Um, he is at the Ottoman court. He's also in Italy. Hmm. There may be interactions with Copernicus, maybe not with Copernicus, but with other Catholics. Talk to us a little bit about the interactions between Jews and Muslims and Christians right. during this really active right. and fertile time. Galliano is in Venice at the same time that Copernicus was studying at the University of Padua. And you can walk from Venice to Padua in a day. There right now is no evidence that will please Eurocentrists. Or, you know, you don't have completely decisive evidence that they met. So I think the conclusion, the conclusion I've put in print and probably will continue to put in print is I can explain how this super important information gets into Europe. What that does is puts anyone who wants to deny what I'm saying, or and my colleagues too, if you want to deny that there's scholarly exchange, you somehow have to explain now, the burden of proof is on you. How is all this stuff in Europe brought by someone who knows Latin, who's very interested in talking to anyone, and yet Copernicus or doesn't hear about it, at least indirectly, I think that's a stretch. But I'm not going to say they actually met. I don't know. I wanted to know more about Jews, Christians, and oh, yeah, Muslims sure. interacting right. during Absolutely, this Absolutely, yeah. At the Ottoman court, there are Jews. I've already mentioned them. Obviously, there are Muslims. Um, 
the Mehmet the Conqueror actually was very interested in uh, the Byzantine Empire. He was very interested. He had contacts with um, Italians, and this these contacts, these cultural contacts, continued into um, the reign of his successor. When you're looking at Jewish communities in Europe, including in Italy, there's a long history of um, of contact. Um, you've got in the area of medicine, uh, Jews are well, Jews are practicing medicine and have Christian patients. You've got uh, Jews. Um, sometimes texts that were originally in Arabic they get translated into Hebrew, and then those Hebrew texts get translated into the Latin, and Jews are doing that, helping with the production of the Latin text. You sometimes have Jewish um, scholars. And these are some of the people I'm looking at who are tutors for well-known Renaissance figures such as uh, Pico della Mirandola, a famous Renaissance scholar who died, I think, in 1494. Um, Cardinal Domenico Grimani, then he, the same guy who tutored Pico is working with Grimani. I mean, they're embedded in Italian intellectual life. Um, I think one of the interesting features of this project is nobody really disputes that because nobody really cares about late medieval philosophy at this point. There, it's not at, there's nothing at stake for our self-image in the West. There's a lot at stake when it gets to science, and I think that's the sort of mysterious road bump. Another thing I look at is there's an immense amount of commercial contact. Um, I've been uh, I've been working, like, actually, you know, today, for the last couple of months, on notarial court documents from the Venetian Republic, and which, what do they tell you? They tell you that... Um, a lot in my scholarly network, um, some of the most prominent commercial families also are the most prominent rabbinical and scholarly families. And these people are constantly lending money to Christians, sometimes borrowing money from Christians. They're going into business deals with Christians. They're trading. They're trading with the, you know, from Crete, they're trading with the Veneto. Sometimes there's trade to the Ottoman Empire. Um, one thing that's interesting about the notarial court, I'm not the only person who's found this, but I'm, I think I'm reconfirming it for the particular period I'm working on, is that both Jews and Muslims also use this court for their own issues. I found a couple of places where, like, I found a situation last week where a woman really seems not to like her husband. He might have been maybe mentally ill, I don't know, but he's not dressed, he's not cleaning up, he's not taking care of her. I think she might be saying she, he smells, I'm not sure, but... And but I know there's some there's a problem because it's very clear at the end of the document the notarial court recommends they get divorced according to Jewish law, so so they're so Jews are taking their issues to the notarial court. One thing I'm working on today is a case, and I haven't pieced out the details, but I'm looking at like a Muslim guy who goes to the notarial court, and I he might be complaining about his boat getting attacked by pirates. Not the only pirate case I found, but but what we have are Muslims now, clearly a Muslim going to this court too. So they all are using this institution, even if they're not Venetian citizens. What's interesting to me is there people are taking issues like their own religious issues, say a marital case, right? You know, and and they're taking it to a non-Jewish court, for example. And there, or that Muslims who are not going to be Venetian, not citizens of the Venetian Republic, are using the court. So there is this this court is a somehow these records are showing that that there's a meeting. What are there. you trying to find in these court records other than evidence of interchange? Not not a whole not not a whole lot. I don't think it my project rises or falls on this. But I think it does show that, you know, whereas other scholars, people are real specialists in 
the, say in the history of the Venetian Republic or in the history of the Jews, you know, they found the same types of contact. What I'm able to do is just extend that research with, into the particular families I'm working on at a particular time. And so I can show that the scholars aren't the only people going around. Oh, no. It's like there are 5% of the people going around the Mediterranean trading stuff. I'm, I'm just – it's mostly business, and it's like 5% knowledge. So how do ideas travel differently in knowledge from other goods that are being exchanged? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the one of the differences is that there's is that you don't always have a receipt for it. <laughs> when you look in these com- court documents, there are receipts for people providing financial backing for shipping or making a deal or lending money. I mean, everything is written down and recorded. You only have that for knowledge if, say, there's a text or somebody says, I read this, somebody said I read it somewhere else, or here's a translation of a text or something like that. That can often be one of the challenges is is that you don't have the same, you don't have that direct evidence. But I do think the I like these commercial records because what they do show is that, well, with the commercial records, there's an economy, right? And I think what you're seeing, what I'm definitely arguing with someone like Moses Galeano, Musa Jalinus, is that he's also trading knowledge. In a way, he lost, right? Because like he's giving away stuff that seemed to help out Europe a lot. After his trip to the Veneto, or at least the trip to the Veneto we know about, he comes back and writes an Ottoman language medical text, which he did in Ottoman Turkish, right? He dedicates it to the sultan's chief physician, or he says, this guy told me to write it. This could be a lie, but this is what he says. You know, and in that, he cites information from Jewish medical texts, stuff in Hebrew, as well as from Latin medical texts. I think he's actually getting through a Hebrew intermediary. But the point is, he thinks this is going to make him look good, right? So it's trading. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we, we have this expression, social capital, right? He's using foreign knowledge to make himself stand out. And in that sense, I like that, you know, in that there's a thematic connection between the businessmen and someone like Galliano. So in the sources that you look at, it's obviously technically very demanding look at, looking at the mathematical astronomy. You're also looking as, at astrology, which was yeah. also mathematical. Right. Yeah. Um, you're looking at medicine. Yeah. Uh, what are the languages you're reading in as well for this? This project just seems oh, vast yeah, to me. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah. The sources, you know, they can be in uh, Hebrew, Arabic, Turkish, and Latin for the primary languages. I mean, it's interesting to hear about the disciplines, too. I think we sort of lapse into this idea that astronomy is totally separate from the, these other domains right. of knowledge when yeah. that's clearly not the case. Absolutely. If you had to look at what's really like the straws that are stirring the drink, it's basically like a two-star martini in this one. You've got two main disciplines that really were high stakes in this discussion, and I think one would probably be astrology. I think it's kind of like it's kind of like economics for us or the financial industry in the sense that you need it. I mean, I invest, I have a, I have a retirement account, but um, we've also had, say, the financial crises. And sometimes people are wondering what exactly are derivatives anyway and why, how is this a real investment or even the stock market? I mean, I've, I'm heavily invested in the stock market, but what exactly are you buying when you buy stock, right? Everybody thought astrology had some value, Maybe not even directly predictive, but at least philosophically. But, you know, what is a zodiacal sign? Why should zodiacal signs be a 30, like a 30-degree a, a pie slice of the heavens, right? Or 
um, you know, a small, like, what, who made that division? You know, so people were asking philosophical questions, but nevertheless, uh, the other one was a type of philosophy based on the work of Averroes, who was a, ultimately, or originally a Spanish, um, a, a Muslim from Iberia, Spanish Muslim, I guess, who was a major um, expositor and commentator, and as he saw it, restorer of um, Aristotle. Almost everything he wrote ends up in Latin, if it's about philosophy, and he has his own afterlife in Europe. He's an important European philosopher, once you look at Averroes in Latin. But Jews were really into it, too, and I think, boy, um, that was where the minds met. I think where I'm, I feel like I've made them a contribution to the astronomy debate is that there was a type of astronomy based on a really rigorous, you might say fundamentalist reading of Aristotle. Um, and it was a type of astronomy that was very philosophically elegant, very symmetrical, very geometric, but very not mathematically um, robust. And is this does this have something to do with the moon and the sublunar and superlunary sphere? It has, kind of, but it has more to do with this idea that Aristotle said that the Earth was exactly at the center yep. of the of the of the cosmos, and all of the orbs, the hollow spheres that make up the pre-modern cosmos, were centered precisely on the Earth, and that sounds great, but. Even Hellenistic astronomers realized if you just kind of jigger it a little, like you pull orbs a little off-center, maybe add some smaller orbs in there, you can fake um, kind of the effect of the ellipses that we have in modern astronomy. And you, the mathematics works out a lot better if you do that. But the elegance is a little lost. But anyway, this type of astronomy has often been seen by historians of astronomy as like you know, philosophically elegant, but mathematically nuts. I've been arguing it was less, by the time you get to the Renaissance, the historical actors actually took it real seriously. And I think that was an extremely important part of the debate. This philosophical discussion about how the cosmos is structured even kind of percolated into, say, Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, which is also a topic in this. So it's, it's really about, again, the straws that stir the drink, you know, it's astrology and Averro is philosophy. Thank you, Robert. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.